Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. As the business world makes an overdue shift from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism, is it possible that we'll see an erosion of innovation? How does a company's purpose impact its success? Hello and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Ty Francis, Chief Advisory Officer, LRN. Today, I'm joined by Mark Hatch, an accomplished entrepreneur, advanced manufacturing expert, and sought after speaker on topics of innovation, disruptive technology, and the future of work. Mark holds an MBA from the Drucker Center at Claremont Graduate University and is presently pursuing a DBA, a Doctor of Business Administration from Pepperdine University. We are going to be talking today about corporate purpose, stakeholder capitalism, and what it means to help people and companies around the world do the right thing. After several successful decades in business, Mark is now researching the influence of organizational purpose on innovation and business transformation at Pepperdine, while simultaneously serving as CEO of the clean energy startup Sileon, amongst other things. Mark Hatch, thanks for joining me on the Principal Podcast. Thank you very much, Ty. It's great to be here. Okay, so for those of us saying to ourselves, where have I heard this name before? Please tell us a little bit about your professional history. Now, we know you as the founder of TechShop and an instigator in the maker movement. What else? Oh, yes, you've spoken at the White House about advanced manufacturing and at the Clinton Global Initiative, something my wife, Elena, was actually involved in during her time at Swiss Re. Oh, how I fun. also know, yeah, she was at Swiss Re for about 10 years and worked very closely with President Clinton. So that's a name. It's all too familiar in my household. But I also know you're involved in the Singularity University, which sounds very Star Trekky. which is an interesting side note, especially since we're talking about purpose today. So I've given an overview, but can you give us a little bit more about your backstory, Mark? I'll hit a couple high points. I'm a former Green Beret, so I was in the Army for three years coming out of high school, which was quite entertaining. And then I started my first company, an interactive multimedia company back in the 80s. One of the things I've discovered that I'm really good at is jumping into something way too early and then getting beaten up for years and years until it becomes the obvious next thing. The interesting thing about that interactive media, though, was that John McAfee of McAfee Antivirus was one of my first investors. Um, I actually got to know John before, before he became infamous, I guess. I spent a little bit of time at Avery Dennison, a big package goods company, a little bit of time at Kinko's, where I launched the e-commerce portion for Kinko's and pulled T1 lines around the United States to wire them all up, spent a little bit of time doing a health benefits ASP and so forth. But most people, if they know who I am at all, is from the maker movement days. Wrote a couple books in it and spent a lot of time traipsing around the globe trying to get people to make things again. Well, I want to touch a couple of those things. So now you aren't the average professor, as we've just heard, because you know, you've got some real bites to your buck. Within what you just told me, I did read that you raised over $20 million and turned Tech Shop into that leading brand in the maker movement, growing it from one to 12 locations. And more impressively, membership and revenue 20x in five years. I got that right. 20x. 20, yeah. You know, as, if, as long as you start from a very small base, it's really easy to hit those high numbers. 
I think you and I have got a different definition of the word easy. <laughs> if that wasn't impressive enough, you also grew that $200 million business at Kinko's by 18%. But I think more impressive than that, and someone who runs a PL, you cut costs by 15 million in a single year. In a single year. So yep. that is both impressive, and I get your students get a kick out of all that experience. We had a pre-conversation before, and I mentioned that I'm lucky enough to know Sir Richard Branson. And he told me years ago how he went into a bookshop and pulled a bunch of books off the uh, library that were about business. I think the first 20 he counted, none of the authors had actually been in business or run a business and were anecdotal at best. Looking at what you've done and what you've succeeded how has that happened and how has that paradigm shifted for you now? One, I do actually tend to live in the future. It's a bad habit. I've got a very, very clear view of what I believe is going to happen. And I clearly did not take my desert training in the special forces very well, where they beat into your head, never mistake a clear view for a short distance. It will kill you. <laughs> So I saw interactive multimedia early. I saw .com early. I, I've seen many of these things. What I managed to do with Tech Shop was raise funds and grow the base quickly enough so that we actually survived for a solid 10 years. But what I do is innovation. My entire career has been on the edge between you know, research and development or the most recent trends and then commercializing them, turning them into a, something that a consumer can understand and acquire. So I am seeing a Star Trek theme in, in all of this, by the way, you know, seeing into the future, <laughs> you know, a Q-esque type uh, person here. But this is fascinating. And you obviously have an incredible foundation for a lot of what you're doing, you know, looking at the past, predicting the future. But I, I do want to tap more into the research you're doing at Pepperdine. And as part of your, your DBA, again, I'm looking at this and I have an honorary doctorate. And I feel very, very small right now. Although well, congratulations. That's uh, that's quite impressive, actually. Yeah. Yeah, but apparently I can't. When the uh, air cabin crew ask if there's a doctor on the plane, <laughs> I'm not allowed to raise my hand. <laughs> when, when they say, what can you help this person with? I can say, well, I've got an interesting anecdote about business. So uh, the DBA you're pursuing right now, I mean, I particularly admire the notion of going back to school for an advanced degree. I've had a limited amount of business success, and during the lockdown, I took three courses, one at a side business university at Oxford, one at Stanford, and one at the London School of Economics. The recurring theme through all of those courses, one was executive leadership, one was uh, DEI and leveraging uh, business through it, and the other was international relations and global politics. Organizational purpose was a common theme through all of those postgraduate and diplomas. And it was fascinating how that was a theme and linking back into business. So, you know, I want you to talk about your work on organizational purpose. But first of all, can you give me or us a definition of your definition of organizational purpose? There are like three versions of what purpose means. But to get a little bit technical, the short version is really simple. Like the single word, the single concept is why a corporation exists. That's what purpose means. Why? Now, usually when you use the term, what is your corporate purpose? 
you're not thinking of the single thing that the word means. You're thinking of a corporate purpose statement or a, a development of a series of concepts, or as they say in business speak, it's a, it's a construct. So I have adopted George et al's from 2021, which is interesting. Most of this good work has happened just in the last few years. So purpose in the for-profit context captures the essence of an organization's existence by explaining what value it seeks to create for its stakeholders. So you're creating value. But then he goes on and defines it a little bit more, which I like. In doing so, purpose provides a clear definition of a firm's intent, creates the ability for the stakeholders to identify with and be inspired by the firm's mission, vision, and values, and establishes actionable pathways and an inspirational outcome for the firm. Sorry, that's very technical, but it is a that's the best broad version that includes mission, vision, and values, which people tend to associate with purpose when you ask them what a corporate purpose is. But let me back up a little bit. So what the reason I got intrigued with this was, well, first of all, I'm very purpose-driven personally. I was usually involved with technologies that I found intriguing and, and could improve humanity in, in some way. But my experience at TechShop was at a completely different level. People were joining because of the purpose of this idea that we could remake our lives by going to a shop that had basically democratized access to the tools of the industrial revolution. Like we were giving the average Joe access to tools that they had never had access to, you know, unless they were 80 years old and come up at three at machine shop or something. But we were giving them, you know, laser cutters and 3D printers and so forth. And I personally got a level of satisfaction out of that. And I got my staff members to perform at levels I had never seen before. We had members that we are evangelists. I mean, they would go, it seemed like sometimes they would go out on the street and tell people like, have you heard of this place? You've got to come in. We had this one member, he quit his job. And he didn't have a great job to begin with. But he quit his job as a night watchman, came up and couch surfed. Like that was a thing for a while. You couchsurfing.com where you could go and like spend a night at somebody's house randomly. So well before, you know, hotel folks came along. He would evangelize each couch that he slept on became a member. Like not, not the couch, the people. Like every place that he went, we got new members. And it was like we thought about maybe paying him just to hang around and sleep on a new couch every night because he was our best attractor. And so this got me really interested in this concept of what is your corporate purpose and how does it play out and impact the organization writ large? I think the biggest question that we have and I have is when people are talking about this concept, how organizations are dealing with this, how are you articulating this to companies, to brands, to leaders, and how to actually put this into practice? Because Many of the conversations I have with boards, with GCs, with anyone, they understand the problem. They see what's happening. They read and they see blogs and they, they have conversations with their fellow board members. But it's actually the tangibility of creating a strategy that puts this into place and something they can follow. What's the, I guess, what's the sticky source? What's the magic wand that you throw over your clients, your your peers on how to actually put this into play. So the research that I'm doing was specifically came out of the kind of the question, like, how do I deal with the naysayers? How do I convince 
a board or a C-suite folks that are like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. I've got my ESG guy and, you know, they're going to keep me between the lanes and and everything's going to be fine. I started down this path as like, what do we actually know about corporate purpose? Where did it spring from? Actually, I go all the way back. What's the original concept of a corporation? Where did that come from? And it goes all the way back. It's crazy. It goes all the way back to pre-Babylonian times. And I won't bore you with all of that. But, you know, it turns out you couldn't have a corporation without having a purpose of some kind. It wasn't allowed. The state would not allow it. The, the, the king would not allow it. I've got a great quote out of the law of corporations, 1702. The sole purpose of a corporation is to improve the society and support the king. Full stop. <laughs> You can't say, okay, I'm here to do like blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to make this like, no, 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 no. How are you going to help your customers? How are you going to improve society? And how are you going to support the king? And if you don't have an answer to that, I'm sorry. Not only will I not give you corporation, if I happen to have given you one and you have strayed too far, I will shut you down. And this was actually the norm up to about 1880 globally. There's this great quote. It was Massachusetts Bay Company, and they charged this poor sod 200 pounds for overcharging his customer. And then, you know, on Sunday morning, the preacher got engaged talking about the, you know, the egregious greed and, and, you know, what what can happen. And, you know, it was, it was simply against the law. And then things changed with the 14th Amendment and some other bizarre things. But we've had this, like, weird era, it's, and that's how I would describe it, between 1886 to about 1950, we were like set loose. You didn't have to have a purpose at all. You actually didn't need any purpose at all. You could just go down to Delaware and say, I want to set up a company. And they go, great. Like they do, they still would ask, what are you going to do? And so in your mind, you had to at least have a customer or like somebody you were going to steal money from, right? Right. (laughs) You had to have some idea. Even today in your charters, you have to say, okay, I'm going to be in this industry segment, which by the way, you just send them a note and uh, and that can change. But about around 1950, that started to shift. So that was a long-winded way of saying, so how do we deal with these guys? And what I wanted to do and what I'm doing is I'm a practical guy. I'm I'm a practitioner. I don't want to sell them something that doesn't work. Like, what does that mean for your purpose? And so I'm really intrigued with this idea of empirically based management tools. How do you know something works? Not one of those 19 books that Sir Branson was talking about, but the one that comes out of the trenches. So I've gone back and I've, I've done a fairly significant review of all of the literature on corporate purpose, what's actually known from a theoretical perspective, from doing interviews, which I don't put a lot of weight into because you get what you want out of your interviews, but actual empirical work that's been done in this space. And it turns out those corporations that do have a purpose that's more than simply serving customers, they have substantially superior financial returns. And actually, I think your firm is an example that is promulgates that point of view based on research you guys have done in the past. We have our our tagline is uh, principal performance. And I'll add that some research we did last year echoes most of what you're saying. I mean, all of what you're saying. My own advisory team released a report alongside our marketing team, and we called it our LRN Benchmark of Ethical Culture, which is a multi-year, it's a collaborative research effort, which draws data from nearly 8,000 employees, 17 industries, 14 countries. And that study conclusively proves that ethical cultures don't just protect corporate reputations, but they propel the bottom line. Companies with 
the strongest ethical cultures strongly outperform by approximately 40% those with the weakest ethical cultures. And that was across all measures of business performance, customer satisfaction, you talked about employee loyalty, innovation, adaptability, and growth. It's very simple. You can make a lot of links to this, but you know, if you keep people happy, if people believe in what you're doing, they will stay. If they stay, they will not leave. If they will not leave, they will not take IP with them. They will not go somewhere else. So all that money you've invested in hiring them, training them, making them better people, they will not take that somewhere else. Yeah, your brand positioning, your ability to charge, the theory is actually pretty well illuminated. Actually, the step that I'm taking, I think we have, in fact, proven that having a higher purpose can or will result in superior financial success. So there's my answer to the naysayers. It's like, it's, this is really simple. Besides being the right thing to do and to feel good about yourself and your company when you go home at night and you talk to your kids about what you're doing, your returns are higher. But the next question that I asked is, okay, show me how. Just throwing a purpose together and announcing it from the mountaintop is not the right answer. Now, you, we are getting results. So kudos to the companies that are executing. But I wanted, I'm wanted i trying to answer the question, okay, how do you operationalize a superior purpose? What are the actual specific financial drivers that create superior form, firm performance? Innovation, and then specifically radical innovation, is historically the largest way that firms create superior returns by far. There, there are other ways of doing it, brand, financial management, operations, Six Sigma, blah, 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 blah. But the number one way of improving your financial performance is actually to do innovation and then radical innovation in particular. That's what I, my little chunk that I, I'm chewing on is, can I show that firms with a, a higher aspirational purpose actually get superior innovation returns and superior uh, radical innovation returns. And the quantitative numbers have come in. I'm now working on writing it up and it's clear, like it's 0.0001 chance that it's false. In fact, a higher purpose does drive uh, radical innovation in a very significant way. It explains 30% of the variance of that and like 35 to 37% of all variance in your innovation. It's huge. So my, my answer is, okay, install purpose and innovate, like point this amazing effort that you've created, point this missile down the range at radical innovation, because you're going to get an enormous return out of it. You've actually answered the next question I was going to ask about how, what this means for the future of business. And you know, what is your vision for how company leaders can apply these insights? As you said, it's not enough for somebody to read in a book about what's happening. It's how they can relate that and put that into practice to change the dynamic of their own companies. We're not just talking about this. Investors are asking companies, point blank, define your purpose. What are you doing to make the world around you better? Larry Fink is writing to CEOs every single year. In the UK, the banking industry are asking, yes, we get it. You're raising capital for people, but what else are you doing? It's a little bit, what have you done for me lately kind of thing. It's We've come full circle now. Like in eight, you know, 1886, we decided, okay, you don't have to have a purpose. But now we are rewriting the laws. The SEC in the US, the UK, as you mentioned, the French have done it. The Italians have done it. The Germans did it ages ago. But there's an enormous amount of pressure now on corporations to be able to explicitly measure what their social good is. They don't necessarily call it your purpose, but that's what they're getting at. 
When I came at this, of course, I have the context of working at Singularity University as a, as a speaker. And I, I know a friend of mine is Salim Ishmael, who's driving this whole exponential organization's effort globally. And in it, he said, sidebar conversations, so, you know, Mark, I've tried to do these exponential innovation efforts without a massively transformative purpose at the beginning of the effort because the corporation was like, yeah, you know, you're making me feel kind of weird about this idea of changing the world and all that. You know, we're an X company. Let's just let's just do the execution part and skip the massively transformative purpose part. And he said every single time we did that, it failed every single time. Like we got nominal innovation out of it. And it actually makes sense when you think about the internal resistance of individuals and their risk profiles. Like typically you go to work and you want to have things normal and you know what's going to happen all day long and you're, you're competent and so forth. Well, when you start doing innovation and particularly radical innovation, you don't know what tomorrow looks like. You don't understand who your customer is. You don't know what the value is per se. And you're thrown in the deep end and you got to figure it out. Now, it's not quite that bad, but it is substantially different than your day to day. And so people don't like it. It's actually, it's hard. Doing radical innovation is the hardest part of being in business because you don't know how it's going to come out. That is a background. It's like, oh my goodness, you're kidding me. You just told me that one of the keys to being able to execute this is an actually reaching for the stars. It's not like, can we get a 15% increase in this? Or can we cut costs by 10% or 5%? It's, can you cut costs by 50%? Can we double our market share? Can we open up an entirely new market segment? Just saying those words creates a new tension in somebody's head. You bring them in and say, okay, we're going to go, like, we're going to get 10% here and 15% there. And everybody goes, oh, cool. I don't have to change anything. I can go back to my desk and keep stamping those pieces of paper and I'm good. You come in and say, I want a 50% increase and I need a 30% reduction over here. We actually, you've lost the audience because for the next five minutes, all they're going to be wondering is whether or not they have a job. Am I qualified to do this? That's what got me going. And you know, we live in the most exciting time in all of human history. We've got more technologies coming on stream in amazing and radical ways. And, and how they're interacting with one another is absolutely stunning. So this is the best time in all of human history to do radical innovation. This is the best time to go after actually deep purposes. And I feel sorry for these corporations who are going, okay, let's try to get a 12% bump over the next two years. Like they're doomed in my mind. It's like, forget it. I, we're going to teach, <laughs> Ty, you and I and others in this world are going to teach the executive suite that radical innovation is possible. It will drive the bottom line, make them feel better, and will in fact change the world. And I'm proving it empirically. That's kind of what I'm excited about. It reminds me of a quote that was a famous NFL coach. And I can't remember now. It'll come back to you by the end of the, the podcast. But it was about reaching for perfection, that you will never attain it. But on the way down, you will hit excellence. And I think this is a an area where why people aren't reaching for the stars is surprising. Because it's that competitive advantage. When we talk about how this is a competitive advantage, not just on a social scale, but on a on a business scale, we've been talking to boards of directors. We had a collaboration with a group called Tapestry Networks. We spoke to 40 directors of publicly traded companies, I mean, 14, 50 companies, and they represented about 70 or 80 different companies across their different board positions. We did this specifically to talk about purpose and culture. We released the findings in a report called Activating Culture and Ethics for Boards late last year. And the results, albeit mostly predictable, the boards want to put culture at the top of their priority lists, but they still don't fully understand how to measure it. 
The refreshing part was that they see that the paradigm has shifted from board members having a, a nose in, fingers out ability to more having nose and fingers in because they are starting to see this as a competitive benefit to having both strategy and culture and purpose aligned. And with that, I think they're seeing they have a better understanding of what corporate purpose should be. I think we're starting to see a tangible move in the, I'm using quotation marks here, tone from the top conversation on how boards are impacting priorities and are influencing culture. So how does that help your research for what you're doing now for the future of work? You've done the surveys. You know what the answers are. But what, what I'm trying to do is start a small renaissance around, prove it to me. What are the actual ways that you operationalize it? It's like, okay, employee retention. Okay, measure employee retention. But don't just measure employee retention. Invest in your employees, right? If you know that they're going to hang around longer, don't just sit on your hand and say, oh, cool, they're going to be here longer. Like, hoo-hoo. Like, no, no, no. What that means is you can actually invest in them in ways that your competitors can't. That's operationalizing this idea of this competitive advantage. Invest in your customers. Invest in your brand. Like, what are you doing specifically to drive your brand in relations in a deeper way? You've created this competitive advantage. You've got this great purpose now sitting on the shelf. Like, great. How are you going to operationalize it? And can we measure it? That's my point. It's like, can we actually measure it and see what the what the returns are? The measurement, that's the trick. Everyone knows what they should be doing, but they don't know how they should be yeah, doing it. Yeah, and if you don't measure it, then you don't care about it, right? It's like, like that's the... <laughs> well, wasn't that the famous misquote from Peter Drucker? What you can't manage, you can measure, or the other way around. <laughs> right. So no, we've been talking a lot about boards and purpose, but we know the SEC and we're talking about the US. Obviously, although I'm American, I'm also Welsh. So, you know, I'm curious if your research extends to to Europe or other regions. I mean, is this universal or is it just stage one USA, stage two RW? It does work, at least in the UK. So I chose my samples 50-50 US, UK, 50-50 male, female, native English speakers, try to control for some other variables. This is clearly true in the UK and the US. My suspicion, obviously, is that it's true in, in a lot of other parts of the country, uh, parts of the world as well. Other research suggests that it is at least pan-European. Gartenberg's work and, and others, uh, Gartenberg did some quantitative research that had 500,000 companies in it from, from around the globe. And they were able to show empirically that purpose does, in fact, drive financial superior financial returns, similar to what your research did. When you're talking about this this corporate purpose, I think, you know, I, you know, I've noticed being, you know, working in the States for a long time that there is in the States and to a certain extent in the UK as well, there's a shareholder driven purpose kind of alignment, whether it's in broader Europe, France and Germany and Italy, there's more of a stakeholder driven perception. So there you see, you know, in Germany, where you've got the different kind of board levels and, and with these very strict labor laws in France, you are seeing that connection between leadership and the employee base having to be aligned because they've got no choice. Because if they don't like what their companies are doing, they can change it and quite dramatically. So that would be interesting to see how that dynamic between the UK and the US, but then certainly further afield of that, how the European companies and organizations are actually using this corporate purpose vehicle 
to their competitive advantage. Right. One might hypothesize that corporate purpose, that's a fundamental driver, but how you operationalize it may vary from region to region. You know, maybe brand is a better tool than radical innovation. Maybe employee retention is a better one. I'm not sure. I doubt it, frankly. I think innovation is one of the fundamental things that you do as a business. Drucker would say you're not even an entrepreneur if you're not doing innovation. You can call yourself a businessman, but you're not an entrepreneur. And so I suspect that innovation, and then as we're moving, again, the opportunity set available now to innovate is phenomenal. Radical innovation is a, it should be a, like a fundamental strategy for any business that's trying to drive purpose into their organization and with their stakeholders. Well, before we sign off, and before I get a, a raft of my very angry American listeners asking why this British guy is talking about American football, it was Vince Lombardi. <laughs> yeah, I suspected that. Quote, you say. <laughs> and, and his quote was, and I'll, I'll see if I can get this right, perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. Yeah. So, Mark Hatch, this has been a fascinating conversation and one that we have merely pricked the service of, and I'd like to have you back to talk a little bit more definitively, especially when the research is done, to look at those results. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with me today and us on this episode. My name is Ty Francis. I want to thank you all for listening to the Principal Podcast by LRN. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please do give us a top rating on your favorite podcast app. Goodbye for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.